Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Monday, July 9th, 2018. My guest today is Jose Gonzalez. Jose is an expert on the endangered fish of Mexico and Madagascar. Jose has given numerous talks across the country and internationally in Mexico, and recently gave a talk at the 2018 American Cichlid Association convention in Houston. Last but certainly not least, Jose is an active contributor to the CARES organization, serving as a CARES team specialist. So Jose, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thank you, Randy. That was uh, very kind of you. Very kind introduction. No, absolutely. I've uh, you know no problem giving credit where uh, credit is due, and I'm very excited to have you on the show, Jose. Uh, you know what what we're going to talk about uh, on during this conversation are, are things that uh, from my hobbyist perspective and uh, just you know my appreciation for nature are very near and dear to my heart, um, and it's very relevant. Uh, this particular episode, because a couple episodes ago I had Greg Sage on, so you know you definitely work in in the actual in the area and in the field um, of the fishes that uh, through his uh, online business selectaquatics.com that he makes available to the public in the United States. So I think it's very very relevant having you on right now, and I'm very excited to talk with you. Yes, I think we're at a particular time where um, there should be special attention to those kinds of fish because of the changing environment uh, and the political status of uh, either country, the U.S. and Mexico. And so there's this is, I think, is an opportunity for people to get involved, um, especially aquarists uh, and anybody really that has any interest in um, not, not just fish conservation, but animal in, in general, animals in general, any any person that is interested in uh, nature. Um, I think they they should um, take this opportunity uh, and uh, get involved yeah, in conservation. I, yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree with you more. So before we jump into the to that very important topic, Jose, uh, let's first kind of unpack and understand. You know, who who's Jose Gonzalez, and how did you get your start keeping tropical fish? Well, I, I guess like most um, aquarists, I got started at a very young age. Um, I must have been around five or six. My mother had a coffee table, and it all got started by just having a fish tank in the, in the house. And I would, uh, I remember laying on the carpet and staring at the fish. Uh, at that time, they were just goldfish. And um, so I remember staring at those fish for hours, and I was responsible at that young age for uh, keeping the tank clean. Uh, obviously, um, I didn't know much about how to properly manage that, so I would often just empty the fish, wash the sand or the shells, and you know, run a little bit of soap on the tank, and uh, eventually I ended up killing the fish. <laughs> so it was a learning curve. That sounds very common to a lot of our experiences with our, our very uh, first tanks. Um, and to ask you real quick, um, this this was in Mexico, right? 
Yes, that, that was that was back in Mexico. In central Mexico, I was born and raised in the state of Guanajuato, okay. which is actually um, it's actually in the range of the godades, live bears. Um, oh, there are cool. many other fish. There are many other fish uh, that inhabit that that particular state is a uh, is a fairly because of the proximity to the highlands in Michoacan and other states state near, nearby. There is uh, quite a fish diversity. Um, but my first uh, real exposure to um, wild fish was in the um, state of Chiapas, in the jungles of Chiapas. I um, collected um, cichlids uh, um, of the um, trichromis. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Uh, it's, um, it's a really beautiful fish. Is there a common and name that, a you can, uh, that you can help me cheat? Yes, uh, so Salvinis. Oh, okay. Thank you. Salvinis are, are the um, is a common name. Um, I collected little fry from them, and I really fell in love with those fish. So uh, later in my in my um, as I was growing up, I collected godets from nearby creeks, um, the genus Godea atropinis, which is a most uh, widely dispersed uh, godade in Mexico. Um, so, as a point of reference, you know, godades are restricted to Mexico, um, the central mesa, uh, so central Mexico. And unfortunately, it also happens to be an area where 60% of the Mexican population live, and quite a bit of industry is located in the area. So there is there is um, a lot of competition for resources, especially water, Clean water and the industrial and domestic output of those of the population actually does affect uh, directly um, the water habitats of the areas. And so, then for your progression, I guess uh, at, at what age um, were you collecting these cichlids, and what at what age were you collecting the gadeids? So, because I. I uh, grew up in the in that area. Um, I think I got exposed to cichlids first before I got exposed to godades. Um, so I'm talking about uh, maybe around 10 years of age when I collected the cichlids. And I managed to get a couple of tanks at that time uh, going for my little um, Salvinis. Uh, when they obviously grew up and killed each other because not much information was available at that time, they didn't realize they were so aggressive. So they ended up um, dying off. I ended up with one fish for a while and uh, eventually died. And so I had these two tanks available to me, and the next natural thing was to go visit the local... Um, it was actually an irrigation channel. Um, I lived in an area that that uh, is an agricultural area, and so there, there are multiple irrigation channels, and so I would um, make uh, nets um, and collect fish uh, from from the channel. And uh, like I said the uh, primarily the fish that was available was a Godea trepinis, and it was a beautiful fish. I remember it um, being a blue. Looking, it had a beautiful shine to it, and um, females 
uh, every now and then I would catch a female and uh, it would, um, um, you know, spawn a clutch of fish and not very many. The godays don't, don't have very large spawns, but I remember having spawns, you know, 10, 20 fish. And they were just amazing to watch and um, being born. And I think that process just stayed in my mind uh, at a very deep um, level of, of, you know, just uh, of, um, I don't know, just awe. Yeah. Know, I was in awe yeah. of those fish. And, uh, and I think the love for the, for the fish just stayed with me because of those early childhood impressions. Yeah, I, I think there's there's two really um, profound uh, events that happen in somebody's early fish keeping career that um, really helps to cement their their passion and their enjoyment of the hobby. And I think those two things are one at a very young age feeding the fish. Um, I think that is an experience that a lot of people share and that the kids really, really find enjoyable. And the second would be the live bear, um, you know, watching a live bear give birth, whether it's the guppies or the mollies or in your case, a gadeid, um, you know, something about that, watching that process. And, and I don't I don't hear too many people say it's, hey, when I watched or, you know, uh, something, a fry come out of an egg or, you know, seeing anything from like an egg scatterer or a placostomus, it's usually the live bear um, that, that people have the fond memories of. Um, so, you know, I, I always go back to how do we get more people into the hobby? How do we encourage children in the hobby and youth? Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the feeding, like from a very early age, making the feeding of the fish a very fun family um, activity that, that everybody can do, especially the little ones. And right now my year and a half old son loves to sprinkle food into the uh, fish tanks. He misses half the time, but he's perfect for the, uh, he's perfect for the 150 gallon outside uh, the, the outdoor pond with some white cloud minnows in it. Cause he can just go to town and he hits it a hundred percent of the time. So he loves, loves feeding the fish at even a year and a half. So I think it's really cool to hear that, you know, you also have that experience of, um, of the live bear, you know, seeing that and just being mesmerized and it really cementing in your, your passion for the hobby. Um, so then I, I want to ask then, I guess in, in central Mexico, like, did you have any, any friends that were also into fish keeping or were you like the one lone kid that's going out to the irrigation ditches, catching these little native fish? No, I actually, I did have a friend, uh, that lived nearby and we would go collect fish every now and then, um, but primarily it was uh, me and my younger sibling. My younger sibling is about four years younger than me, and I would take them to the to the um, to these channels. And of course, you know, since these are irrigation channels, we'll come back uh, full of mud and just like really wonderful experiences. You know, it, um, we would uh, run into uh, water snakes and all kinds of. Um, all kinds of creatures in in these channels, and, and uh, it, it really left an impression. But I, I think you're correct. You know, the the watching a fish just multiply is it's really it's really a miracle, um, and it just stays in your mind to such a degree that 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 you actually um, develop this attention and protection for the, the animal at a very at a very early age. 
So now it's all really clicking in place, right? Like, why is it that Jose is, you know, a CARES team member? Um, why you're so passionate and why you're kind of this expert on the endangered fishes of Mexico? You know, it's it's your childhood is rooted um, in the experiences with these fish. And so it's a very natural thing to know that now, okay, you, you are big time in the conservation um, and helping to preserve these fish. So I guess, though, to, to kind of fill in the gaps and to jump forward. So, Jose, you're now collecting with your, your younger siblings. You know, you're, you're in love with these Gadeids. How do we then fast forward to a point where you've really progressed in the hobby um, and you're kind of, you know, you're now at the point where you're starting to work on conservation activities and you're starting to, um, you know, give presentations at fish clubs and, and be a part of the um, ACA and the CARES organization. That, that really took a long time, to be honest with you. Um, it's been it's been a long time since, since that early childhood memories. I migrated to the U.S. Uh, basically with a student visa and uh, completed um, a pharmacy degree and doing sometime about four or five years, I actually didn't have any fish. Um, I was busy with school and, and, um, not that I lost the love for the fish. It was a transition from coming from Mexico to the U.S. that I had to leave everything behind. But, um, while in the States, uh, basic, uh, more specifically in Austin, Texas, I run into a wonderful fish store um, by the name of uh, Amazonia. And um, this store uh, was managed by Caroline Estes. Um, she was a, she's a big girl and, and she was a big figure in, in the Central American fish, cichlids, excuse me. And that kind of ignited my, uh, my passion again for the fish. Um, in terms of my activities uh, in regards to conservation, they really, I think, have matured over the years. I've taken many trips to various areas in Mexico and observed firsthand what's happening to the fish. I've I've seen fish just completely disappear from a location. Um, and that really is like, when you see that happen, um, firsthand, it, um, it gives you a sense of urgency. Um, because you know that at any minute, uh, fish that you see that have restricted habitats, you know that they can disappear at any time. And so it's important, I think, for people to be aware of these things. And the only way we can make people aware of these things is actually visiting the places. Uh, it's difficult to realize how small these habitats are, only you go see them yourself. But really, the, uh, many of these habitats are tiny. They, they have very low water flows because um, there's significant water extraction. There's many other problems, but I think if people got around and travel to these areas, I think it would be a different story. I think more people would be involved. So let's talk about your travel. So I guess in my head, it sounds very natural that, you know, Jose's going back home to visit family. Um, how did you then kind of witness and see that this destruction was happening to the habitat and your fish aren't there anymore? Was it just, you know, was it like your your siblings that are still living there? Like, Jose, you should come see what's happening. It's really sad and tragic. Or did you take it upon yourself to want to go back out there and collect some fish? Um. I got involved in a club, in a fish club in uh, the city of Monterrey in northern Mexico. And uh, 
there is a particular gentleman over there. His name is uh, Marco Arroyo, and uh, he is of a similar mind frame. And uh, we started actually visiting areas in the northern states of Mexico um, that were also, they had limited, um, the habitats are limited to very small areas. And uh, we were talking quite a bit, we talked a lot about um, the genus uh, Cyprinodon, which is a killerfish that occurs in uh, the U.S. and northern Mexico and a couple of the Caribbean islands. And we realized that most of the most of the species in that genus is actually threatened. Um, there's been a few uh, extinctions in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and so we also traveled to other states, the state of Durango, where you see uh, a few godades, um, particularly the genus uh, Caracodon. And uh, they're Habitats are even more restricted. Um, not only that, there is significant pollution in a couple of the rivers, uh, industrial pollution from a paper mill, and there are a few towns that don't have um, proper sewage uh, treatment plants. In fact, they have um, open sewers, and so the domestic uh, waste just flows in the river. And godates tend to be a little sensitive to to pollution. In fact, most fish are. But um, so this has contributed to a significant decline in that genus in the state of Durango. Uh, and the, the, that particularly uh, that particular genus I work with because living in the state of Texas, uh, it allow it affords me to maintain fish that tolerate heat. Um, the summers here are unforgiven, and, and we also have cold winters. And luckily for me, the fish can tolerate very low temperatures. So they're very flexible in terms of working with them. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, the numbers are in significant decline. In the last um, three years, we've seen um decline in the populations of about 50%. And I'm talking about populations that were already... Um, in significant decline. So it's, it's, it's very worrisome that these fish are not going to be around for another 10 years. I, I, I seriously doubt that they will survive. So then I, I guess to kind of, to go from here, I mean, there there's a couple points to talk about. One being, you know, travel, um, being our, our neighbor to the south, being a part of North America um, at large. I mean, you know, you're not you're not really that far, right? Like a trip to Peru, a trip to um, Papua New Guinea, to Australia, to India, like any of these places are far greater distance away uh, than just, you know, uh, for the United States at least, our, our neighbor to the south, right? Um, you know, just right across the border from, from Texas or Arizona, and you're in Mexico. Um, so not very far for us to be able to go there. As far as traveling, like, how would you encourage somebody in the United States or, or in Canada um, or anywhere else that maybe wants to come to your area? Like what, I guess, other than going there and seeing these habitats and seeing kind of the situation that they're in, um, you know, what? how would you kind of frame the travel for that person or for that group? Um, or, or are there, you know, tour guides that say, hey, come on down, we'll go ahead and do fish collecting adventures and, you know, f- with, with a purely conservation angle on that? Well, I don't think there are any particular tours 
that are organized uh, for the state of Durango. Um, the state itself is, um, I think you need to go with somebody who knows the state uh, for your safety and to also find the the habitats. The habitats are very small. Not a lot of people are aware of where they are. Um, in fact, uh, one of the habitats is in a private um, uh, plot of land. And these habitats that I'm talking about are very small. They're like 30 by 10 feet. Um, and they're, you know, they hold a single species or single population. Wow, um, that's incredible. Yes. Yeah, the best way to get around to visit Caracolon is, is Get in touch with somebody in the uh, in the club in the in Monterrey. Um, the club itself is is called Carac uh, C A R A C. It's a community of uh, uh, aquarists from the um, Monterrey region, and they are they would be happy to take uh, to take uh, a trip to visit the areas. Um, like I said, the populations are. Um, declining, so I uh, the the fish itself is protected in Mexico. There is um, there is a set of regulations called the uh, Norma Oficial Mexicana, uh, and the fish are included in that in that uh, list. So you would have to get a special permit to collect, uh, but you definitely can take pictures and just relay the stories. And the conditions that you see, so I think it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity for people to get to know this. Um, the, most fish are available in the hobby. Um, the American Library Association, uh, a few members have uh, uh, dates of that genus, genus Caracolon, and there is a group of aquarists, the Godade Working Group. It's actually very um, active, uh, along with the University of Michoacan in San Nicolas, Michoacan, that actually is working um, with introducing um, Sorbinetico stachyla. In fact, they did that last year or the year before. And it turns out that the introduction itself was successful. You know, a lot of fish actually do perish when they've been kept in, in captivity and they are introduced in the wild because the bacterial population changes and they have to learn habits to basically fend for themselves. But uh, those two groups, uh, the Godet Working Group and uh, um, the folks working at the University of Michoacan, they're very happy to entertain and to take people uh, on trips I know I think there is uh the Godain Working Group has uh annual meetings in Mexico. So those are good opportunities to visit. Um especially for Godays that are further into Mexico other than Durango. Um the state of Michoacan is rich in biodiversity and there are over forty species of Godades and about sixty percent of them have lost uh more than fifty percent of their habitat. So these are big changes that, that we're talking about, um, and uh, I think the more people know, the more people can get involved in the in their care, and just basically uh, passing them along and 
breeding them and helping conserve them. Yeah, that's great. And I'll make sure that, um, you know, everything that you've listed will all have links to um, the Monterey Fish Club, uh, to the university, to the Gadeed Working Group, everything that you've just mentioned. I'll make sure that we have links, uh, direct links in the show notes so that people can follow up and, and you know, um, check out and see all the work that they're doing. And, and hopefully if they're, you know, interested and want to really get connected and, and take you up on your suggestion, uh, your encouragement to go down there. Um, and participate in one of these, you know, we'll call it a field trip, if you will, to, to just observe and see what's going on. Um, so that, that, that sounds great in terms of, you know, building the awareness and understanding kind of what's going on, like the plight um, by traveling down there or just hearing stories of people that have gone down there or seeing photographs. But from a conservation standpoint, like we know that we're breeding them here in the States. Um, it sounds like, you know, we, we've got a lot of people that are very interested and they're doing a good job. Well, maybe not a lot, but we have people that are interested. They're being successful and we're able to, from the hobbyist standpoint, keep these species going. Um, but from like the actual conservation standpoint, um, you know, what is being done for, you know, to help um, mitigate the damage of the paper mills, um, or to help put things in place from the from the sewage perspective, so that the local municipalities um, have the sewage system and treatment in place, so that they're no longer dumping um, that waste into the water system. And I mean, if this is if these species are protected by Mexican law, um, so you can't collect them from a conservation standpoint. But is the Mexican law stepping up to say, hey, this is a protected species. We need to have X, Y, and Z in place so that their natural habitat is protected. Yeah, that that is a that is a, a topic of um, uh, discussion. I think there is a lack of will. If, um, well, there's a lack of will, basically, from the from the Mexican government in terms of regulation of industrial waste um, in the area. Uh, they, I know in the past, this particular uh, company was fine for um, releasing waste, but uh, at this point, it's, it's almost mute because the industrial waste um, did the damage. Um, it is after the fact that uh, we now um, lost uh, over 70% of the populations of the of the Caracolan uh, genus. And so we are down to just a handful of, uh, of locations with uh, viable populations. And unfortunately, there's really not a single NGO or a single governmental um, agency working on the preservation. Um, the only, as far as I know, the only people that are involved are the University of Michoacan and the Godin Working Group. Um, I know they've had, they have a couple of populations breeding in the University of Michoacan, but they don't have uh, extensive um, numbers. So they're limited to very small numbers uh, and um, the other the other problem that every now and then I see when people talk about their fish or they show pictures is that every now and then um, hybrids develop. Um, they will show pictures of a fish that does not look anything like the wild fish, and um, and so that's another problem um, for the fish. If you 
if you have an aquarist that uh, believes strongly that they have a particular population and that is an incorrect population or is a hybrid and it's passed along, um, well, it, it can generate a problem because you're passing along a hybrid. And uh, it's important to have pictures of the wild fish uh, so that people can compare and realize, oh, well, this is doesn't look like anything like it. And uh, to be sure, to ascertain the the, uh, the origin um, of the fish, people need to keep a good record of who they got the fish from, what year, or if there's any information as to the collection, uh, who collected them, were they collected um, by the University of Michoacan? I know they have um, the permits that are necessary um, because they do a lot of research and they do conservation. And they will be willing, actually, to um, share that information with you and possibly share fish with you. But um, no, don't quote me on that yet because... Um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> that really depends on their the availability of fish at that time and their colonies. Um, but they are really amazing people. These people are really um, vested in what they're doing and they are willing to share whatever information they have and they're more than happy to... Um, to show people their their facility and where to visit the fish. So I guess to help um, with the hybrid uh, problem, if you will, I'm looking at the Gadid Working Group. Um, they have a section on their webpage called About the Species, and it looks like they list um, at least, what is this, 20, 25 uh, genuses of the Gadids, and then when you click on each one, you know, it breaks it out and you get some species, um, species profiles. Mm-hmm. And each of these species profiles is incredibly detailed. Um, you know, it spans, like, I'm, I'm literally having to scroll down the page quite a bit to take in all the information just for one species. I'm looking at Caracadon um, Garmani, um, or no, Lateralis, that's the one I'm looking at right now. There's a you know, at least 15, 16 pictures, no, actually more than that, of the the fish themselves. Um, it looks like with pairs and groups in, you know, against a white background, against a black background. So basically what I'm getting at is, you know, this website here, the Gadid Working Group, they're giving you a tremendous resource of how to be able to identify um, and make sure that, you know, the species that you actually have is what it's supposed to be. Maybe if you have a Gadid that somebody just didn't know what the genus or species was, they just knew it was a live bear or some sort and you can tell it's a good deed you can come here and check out this website um, to get an accurate species identification um, so that way we can help prevent you know we'll have accurate um, identification of fish that are in the uh, in the hobby um, and so that we're not passing along you know inaccurate information associated to to, um, to these fish yeah that is actually a, an amazing resource um, Michael I think Michael Cook uh, is responsible for maintaining it, and uh, he does he does an amazing work uh, with this um, fish. Yeah, the pictures are definitely um, a very invaluable resource for people that are trying to identify fish. They what, what's interesting about um, Caracolan is that. Uh, Females uh, of most of the uh, population sites uh, look very similar, with the exception of Audax. The female from Audax is a lot darker, um, 
And so that's, that's, e- that's easy um, to identify. But when it comes to the lateralis, uh, the various lateralis populations there, females look very similar. Um, and so most people would use pictures of males. Um, however, males change coloration as they get older. And it's important to compare fish of similar ages so that you know what you're looking at. Um, because older fish definitely do look different. And you will have, you will have, um, within the population, you'll have subdominant males that are very pale. And then you'll have dominant males that are very brightly colored. And uh, that makes a difference too when you're trying to identify what kind of fish you have. Uh, the most common error that I've seen is with a particular population from the town of uh, Los Verros, um, where the fish are actually very elongated and they don't look anything like the other caracol. They have a yellow hue to them and they have dorsal um, scales that if you look at the fish from above, is easy to pick as a very different species. Um, and those fish, I know I've seen pictures of the red lateralis and labeled as Los Verros and it's nothing like the wild type. And so I know those people are in error, but it's difficult to convince an aquarist that they have <laughs> a hybrid. And then I guess kind of in that scenario, you could, you know, start the online firestorm and maybe post to one of the Facebook groups and say, hey, I think my species is this. Um, Here's a link to the resource that I'm using to identify and then kind of crowdsource your your answer and see if uh, see if you can light the Internet ablaze with uh, heated discussion back and forth of what that species may actually be. Right. Yes. So do we feel that would be, that would <laughs> with the uh, with the Gadeids, do we feel like you know for the most part we've cataloged and we know of of all of the genuses and species of Gadeids that are in um, the Me- in central Mexico or do we feel like you know we still may find a couple more species out there if we keep you know kind of searching so the, I had a conversation with Omar Dominguez he's the archaeologist at the University of uh, Nuevo Leon, uh about three years ago and um, his opinion was that there were still a couple of species that were not described. Um, but at this point, um, as far as I know, uh, we're looking at a little over 40 species. Um, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's, there's a cool more laying around somewhere. Um, the problem is, you know, that uh, by now there's um, two, three that have become extinct. So the total number of species um, is actually decreasing because they are becoming becoming uh, extinct. Um, there is there is fortunately for the fish there is uh, more awareness in the in the last few years, um, but uh, I think there is still a lot more to do in, in regards to trying to conserve them, trying to protect their habitat because uh, ultimately. The best way you can conserve a fish is to protect their habitat. Yeah, definitely. I, I fully agree with that. Um, so for people, though, that, you know, can, again, they, they, they want to get involved, they want to keep, you know, one or two of these fish, um, and they understand that it, it's going to be a long-term investment, and hopefully their intentions are, 
uh, are good in that they want to preserve a species in their own home. They want to dedicate one or two aquariums to this fish. Um, and they want to keep it for a very, very long time indefinitely um, and share those with other members of their fish club or in their area that have the same mindset. Um, so if you were to talk to one of those, you know, those aquarists out there um, of the species that are somewhat readily available in the hobby, or, you know, maybe working through the Gadeed Working Group or contacting the university and being patient and understanding that it may take a while, um, what would be like the one or two species where, you know, uh, the world according to Jose, he feels like, okay, these are like the two species that if somebody really, really wanted to get these fish and help out, like these are the ones I'm most concerned about. These are the ones I feel like there's not enough people keeping um, in their home aquaria. Yeah, I, I think Caracolon is a particular genus that is in in the most uh, dire straits. So any of the populations of Caracolon, I think, would be a great place to start. Um, they can be a little challenging, but if you have an aquarium that is 30, 40 gallons, um, that is a perfect setup. Um, it needs to be planted because they... Adults may tend to eat their fries, so um, I think that would help you um, make sure that you multiply this fish and get other people involved. Um, the ALA is particularly useful in terms of having contacts with people that have similar fish or may have the fish. And so you can uh, uh, look for somebody um, in the ALA uh, or Within the Golday Working Group, I know I think Aquavit sometimes has uh, uh, fish listed in there, although Caracolon is a fairly rare um, fish to see there. Every now and then you'll have uh, you'll have um, people selling their excess fish. So those are good places to start. Um, and the fish itself uh, is a relatively small fish, you know, three, three inches, uh, maybe four at max for females. And uh, the, the, their spawns are frequent if if they're fed the right uh, the right food, and it's basically an omnivore, and so they have a very particular uh, way of um, where their gestation is very particular. They have this placenta-like um, structures, and you know the fry have uh, something called trophotania, which is kind of like an umbilical cord at the time they're born. So that really actually adds an, an extra layer of, of interest um, to the fish. I think is uh, they're considered one of the more primitive godades um, in terms of evolutionary um, the evolution of the fish and those primitive structures are really really cool to observe. Um, so yeah, I would I would use the ALA as a source. Uh, and um, try to look for for um, become active in, in breathing um, caracolon. Um, caracolon is flexible, like I said, because it tolerates heat, uh, particularly when you live in the in areas where the summers are very hot. If you live up north of the United States, any gold aid, any even caracolon is, is is a good it's a good um, good fish or good species to have. So with these fish, I would assume then, um, so you've said kind of 30, 40 gallon tank, 
uh, planted. I'm assuming we want to go species only, right? Like we want to make sure that, well, um, that's my assumption, right? Th this particular hobbyist, this aquarist, even myself, um, I'm, I'm going to get a good deed here in the coming future. Uh, very soon. Maybe I'll make the announcement, but nonetheless, I've got plans for, for that as one of my care species. Um, species only tank. Uh, it, heater. I would assume if you live somewhere in the north, it gets really, really cold in the wintertime. You're definitely going to want to have a heater in, in this tank. Well, that depends. Uh, so if you're, as long as your fish tank doesn't freeze over, <laughs> that's fine. Oh, so but oh. <laughs> most of the time you, most of the time this fish actually do tolerate um, cold weather. Um, uh, so central Mexico, especially like close to Mexico City, is in the highlands of the of the Sierra Madre, and the weather um, temperatures or the temperatures basically do drop down into the into the thirties. And so the, the fish um, tolerate um, low temperatures as long as the, as long as the, the 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 tank doesn't freeze over, they will be fine. Um, I've had my uh, the caracodon that I'm uh, raising on outdoor ponds, and um, sometimes we have temperatures that drop in the twenties. Uh, although for central Texas, you know, this. Temperatures are very transient. Uh, they may last a day or two um, for outdoor ponds. Um, inside a inside a fish tank, I don't think you uh, you necessarily need a, a heater because the temperatures are much higher than 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 what you have outside. Yeah, in the northern, uh, states. Yeah, so that that's that's another you know nice little added bonus that these are fish that. You know, you don't have to throw a heater in your tank. And, you know, honestly, if you've got multiple tank syndrome and you're not one of the people that that's heating your fish room, um, that's kind of nice to, to have one less tank where you have to worry about um, an electronic heater, you know, sticking on or sticking off, um, or at least sticking on in this case and potentially, you know, boiling your fish. But like you're saying, it sounds like they can tolerate quite a bit of heat as well. Um, do, you, yeah. do you overwinter your fish in the pond then? They stay out. They stay out uh, year round. Yes. Oh, excellent! Yeah, that's very cool. Maybe uh, hmm, I should have thought about that before I put the uh, white cloud minnows in my 150 gallon. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that's that's definitely good to know because at least in my area, I think uh, there may be. I don't know, might be pushing it to try to overwinter um, a fish like this in my area. I mean, we definitely don't um, have freezing weather. Um, it will dip down into the 30s and maybe the the high 20s for a, a day or two, um, but that's only at like the kind of the coldest point. But um, yeah, that's a that's a thought for a uh, for further discussion. Um, yeah, and you know, to your point, the the Caracadon, I mean, I'm looking at the Audax, I think I'm, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, they've got a common name of the Black Prince. I mean, that's that's already right there, a super cool common name that you can say, hey, I've got this incredibly rare Gadeid fish. It's called the Black Prince. Like, to me, that's just one of those extra <laughs> little silly selling points. Um, and, and Jose, lastly, you know, I, I wanted to thank you for, um, you know, kind of breaking down a little bit further in detail the difference between uh, or what makes a good deed so unique in that, you know, they're, I think it, the term is ovivaporous, where they where they have yep. the placenta, they have um, the umbilical mm -hmm. cord, right? So so from the outside looking at the fish in your aquarium, you see that it's it's giving this live birth, right? So, so it is a live bearer, but unlike the mollies and the guppies and the platies, um, you know, this has a different internal way that it, it, it holds and it processes the young, right? 
That that is correct. The gestation itself is very quite interesting. Um, and the the fish species have different uh, lengths of trophotyenia at at the time of birth. So in terms of embryonic development, yes, uh, the term is called oviviparous. Um, well, actually, the gestation is called mitotrophy, uh, and uh, um, it is quite um, interesting because it's, it's restricted to this particular um, family of fish. No other fish, uh, no other library has um, breeds this way. And uh, it's quite unique. Uh, but um, j just to go back a little bit uh, in terms of maintenance of the fish, it's, the fish should do better without heaters. Um, they tolerate and they prefer actually cold temperatures. Oh, very cool. Yeah, there's there's definitely a whole lot more to unpack on, um, you know, allowing our fish that we keep, so certain fish, to, to go through those temperature changes, those normal fluctuations, um, you know, especially when it's in the controlled environment of your home that, you know, unless you live in the, you know, the northeast where those guys get pounded with, you know, really, really cold blizzards or somewhere like uh, Minnesota, uh, I mean, your home is going to stay a pretty constant temperature and it's not going to dip too low. But just having those fluctuations in the water temperature um, could potentially be or and is good for the fish as opposed to keeping it at one constant temperature 365 days a year. Yeah, yes, definitely. I think fish need to have these cycles of of um, their natural cycles too. You know, the the winter time uh, fish tend to decrease their breathing, and it helps them uh, regenerate the strength uh, needed for the breeding season. So I think it's important to give them um, that ability to to um, replenish their, their fat stores and replenish. And get ready basically to for the breeding season. So I don't normally keep my tanks. I I do have some indoors, and I don't keep them heated for the most part, except for the Madagascan uh, fish because those do need um, a little bit of heat. They don't take cold temperatures. But in terms of the godets, they, they do wonderfully um, with the cold weather. Um, uh, like I said, the caracolon, because they're very flexible in terms of the temperature requirements. And because I live in central Texas and it's fairly warm here, they, they do very well. Um, it's, it's just a very flexible genus. So listeners out there, there you go. It's just one more reason why you should keep these uh, good deeds for the long term. And so lastly, Jose, I guess I'll, I'll just leave it with, uh, you know, giving you the opportunity to, you know, one, I'm curious to know what do you have planned um, kind of on the on the near term horizon? And, you know, what are you doing in the hobby? Are there any particular activities that, you know, are in the future that you'd like to give a, a preemptive shout out to? And then lastly, um, you know, any of the other groups um, or websites that you'd like to publicize and we'll make Make sure that we have those um, in the show notes for people to check out. Yeah, I, um, I think uh, if people want to get started on on libraries, uh, especially um, in the family of the Godades, I think the American Library Association is an excellent place to start and and uh, become a little bit more um, specialized by. Uh, also visiting the Godain Working Group and um, 
if somebody is able to travel or to contact the folks in in northern Mexico at the uh, with the Karak group or even the Godin working group and actually do make a trip to central Mexico and just immerse yourself in the um in the in the the life and the of the local people and visit the areas where this fish actually occur. I think it just that goes a long way into energizing the love for the fish. They really just um getting you to see these areas and to see the fish in the wild does um a lot of good in terms of um your your physical and mental health uh, when it comes to working with the fish, because it's a, it's a little bit taxing um, to actually realize that you have a fish uh, that you could potentially be the only person in the world that has a fish. And uh, it can be a little uh, stressful, you know, but I think visiting and traveling, it opens your eyes to the possibilities and the, really the need to maintain um, the fish to for future generations. Excellent. Well, Jose, thank you very much for joining me tonight on the Aquarius Podcast. I really appreciate the time um, that you've put in to talk with me. I'm definitely a, a huge fan of the effort that you've put in for this fish. And, you know, I hope that you and I can can stay connected um, on the good deeds, the work that you're doing. Um, and I definitely know you dropped a little teaser about the uh, Madagascar fish. So hopefully, you know, in the next couple months that I could have you back on and talk about the fish from Madagascar as well. Well, thank you, Randy. I I do uh, I did enjoy uh, talking to you. Uh, it, this is uh, a passion of mine. Um, I I do have a special place in my heart for the the Madagascan cichlids, and and there's a lot of stuff that um, people don't realize about how special these fish are. Um, and yeah, I would I'd love to talk to you about them uh, in in detail. They're they're quite uh, fascinating. Excellent. Well, Jose, thank you very much again. I hope you have a great evening. I hope everyone out there enjoyed the the, uh, the conversation, and uh, you have a good one now, Jose. Thank you so much, Randy. You too. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.